Smash Mouth? I don't think so. Hey Ya, I think is uh Oh it's uh uh CeeLo? I, I I can't remember if it's him or if it's what was that group that Fergie was in? Was it don't do the, the, the retar- like let's get retarded and uh, uh Black Eyed Peas? I think it might be Black Eyed Peas, I don't remember. It's yeah, they really time. had a, they really had a song that's, that's like let's get retarded in here. They did, was, they did. That shit was fire. It's amazing that that happened. You think Dude, about like Beyonce. Beyonce just like went back and changed that. Uh, she she used the word spaz in one of her songs, and then I guess like Twitter did its thing, and she like went and changed the lyric. And I thought that was weird because uh, Beyonce is like a nation state. Yeah. So like she, she could have easily just like not even acknowledged the issue. Yeah, she could have just shaked it off. I mean, she doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't. Uh, uh, she's not affected by this stuff. Yeah, but I guess whatever her brand. Right? People are doing it. I was reading that uh, the uh, guys who make Stranger Things, the Duffer Brothers, are going back and they're changing elements of the story in the first season. There's um, one Why? of the main one of the main characters. He uh, he's out in the woods, like taking photographs, looking for his missing brother, and he comes across the house where the girl he has a crush on is having a party with her, her man, and a bunch of, like, the cool oh, jocks. Yeah. And he takes creepy photos. He takes creepy photos, so they're going to remove that scene. But I think that that scene that's defines insane. his character. Like, that's the whole point. Like, he's the dork who, like, yeah, he's out there looking for his brother, but he sees the girl and he takes a picture of her anyway. It's removing all poignance from the character. Uh, well, you know, what are you going to do? Is that creepy behavior? Yes. It is, but it's important to the character. It's, it's, uh, you know, people are not these perfect things. People are complicated and they have flaws. And if you, um, if you remove human flaws or pretend they don't exist or hold everyone to a standard where there are no flaws, um, it, that's going to create a real fucked up society. In fact, one that's a lot like the one that, uh, our subject, uh, author describes in today's episode. Well, it's, it's sanitizing, right? It's like, uh, it's like when, uh. Spielberg went back and replaced all the guns in E.T. with walkie-talkies. It's like, what are you doing, dog? Yeah, it's this, uh, this process where people pretend like, uh, like everything is a certain way, and it, it spreads out from institutions and ideologies and into people, and the point where I think uh, things get a little bit spooky is when that kind of gets inside your own mind, and you find yourself... Um, internalizing your own policeman yeah you're just policing yourself you're enslaving yourself yeah. you're uh harshly judging yourself for everything you do mm-hmm. which isn't to say you shouldn't judge yourself sometimes but no no of course i mean we have to have self-control but i think there's um there's a difference and i think the difference is that like self-control for its own sake for doing the things that you want to do is one thing but then like self-control that is so clearly planted in your mind by outsiders there's a, you can you can see the distinctions like the the boss lady grind set kind of mind frame that just leads to burnout versus like the you know disciplining yourself because you want to actually do something for you kind of mentality that's different. I mean, uh, I'm learning discipline just by this little experiment project that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this requires discipline. This requires uh, research and writing, and uh, we actually have to sit down and do it. And even 
maybe sometimes I don't feel like doing it, but you know what? We got to do it, right? We, we decided we're going to do something. So you mm-hmm. buckle down. Exactly. And maybe, you know, I've actually like, I haven't really come to a conclusion as to whether or not my own personal projects are pure in that sense, like in, in the Byung-Chul Han sense, or if they're um, kind of maligned or like marked by exterior influence from, from the psychopolitical uh, influences of, I don't know what, to, what to even call it, I guess, like the, the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, today we're talking about Byung Shul Han. It's a book mm-hmm. called Psychopolitics, which is like, uh, uh, this book is like crack cocaine to me because there is no fat on this book. It's 80 pages. <laughs> Every sentence hits. It's a banger. Every mm-hmm. sentence is a banger tweet. Absolutely. I mean, I try, you try going through this thing with a highlighter and you're going to be just like hitting. You highlight sessions. the whole book. Yeah. I just I end up circling whole pages, and I'm like, well, this is all important. Mm. So, <laughs> uh, could you describe uh, the author a little bit? Off yeah, the top sure. Of your head or, yeah. Um, so, Byung Chul Han, um, I believe he's in his 60s. Uh, he grew up in in um, Seoul in South Korea, uh, and he originally studied to be a metallurgist. So he was going to do um, you know like manual labor, and then he ended up traveling. Um, out to Germany, uh, where he studied continental philosophy and German literature and uh, got really exposed to particularly Heidegger and, um, and uh, people like Foucault and Derrida. Heigl, he quotes yeah. a lot in here. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he's, he's become this, I would say, really important living philosopher who um, was able to make a leap that Foucault did not uh, in characterizing the unique quality of the modern world that we live in compared to previous forms of power distribution. Uh, and a lot of his work is about this. His, his early work, uh, so it's like the book that precedes this is called The Burnout Society. And uh, a lot of it focuses on these ideas that, you know, you think about the diseases that plague us living today. You know, it's not so much, um, you know, like gout or even cancer or the kinds of diseases that afflicted our ancestors, but it's things like attention deficit disorder, depression, suicidal ideation, uh, addiction. It's these like really deep-rooted afflictions of the soul that uh, Han kind of makes a, a, a case for being not resulting from poor health or, um, or lack of, of care, or lack of, of uh, I guess, like positive aspects in life, but of an overabundance of, of like an extremity of, of the good and of the excess. Like when you have infinite options or like you're infinitely pampered and all of your needs are met, like you're, you start to break down and your, your, um, your soul and your mind suffer from it. And that's, that's pretty much what I believe he touches on in Burnout Society. Uh, but this one, this one goes a, a bit further, and it, it, it's more on like a macro scale about like how power works and how we internalize power. The title of the book, I mean, he literally meant psychopolitics is in this shit is insane. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a combination of both. I think it, it's obvious. It's very, very much a pun where it's like okay. it's psychopolitics because it is crazy. And, it, you know, this is this is a world of mental illness. You know, if. Um, if someone like Christopher Lash, you know, called late 20th century America the culture of narcissism, um, you know, I think someone like Byun Shul Han, and I think we've even made this comment in previous episodes that we don't live in a culture of narcissism anymore. We live like in a culture of bipolar disorder, of psychopathy. And uh, people 
don't even know how to be narcissistic anymore because they don't even know how to do what benefits them, you know, in a way that like really benefits themselves. Like people are fucking crazy. Um, and, and they're suffering really hard from all of these mental illnesses now, uh, that, yeah, that, and it's, it's victimization of like modernity. So I think on one hand, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like psychopolitics is, is everyone is, is fucking losing their minds. And then on the other side, the word also means that, uh, it's, it's a regime where the, the method with which power is, is exerted is not in the body, but on the mind or the soul. I think he would even argue. So the book is called Psychopolitics, Neoliberalism, and New Technologies of Power. Mm-hmm. First chapter is the crisis of freedom. I guess this, this chapter, I mean, he sums it up here, the crisis of freedom, the issue of freedom or unfreedom, and how we do it to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting here. He opens my eyes to like a new definition of subject, you know, the way we use like subject, noun, verb, <clears throat> and English grammar. I never thought of subject as in like literally you're a subject, yeah. As in, you've been subjugated, as in, you are under the thumb of something, always. And we use, that's how we describe it in the English language. It's how we describe ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, he opened my eyes to, like, and like when I read that now, I can't help but see, like, subject, slave. I think it's a lot like, like, the point you made about psychopolitics itself in the title. Like, it's, it's a packed word that has dual meaning. Well, he's, Where, uh, fi- he's, but it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. He's finding a very obvious meaning for a word that you never thought about before. The subject or literally the one who's cast down. Yeah. Is how he puts it. It's just a dark spin on English grammar for me. I like it. And I, I like that he, he flexes it on grammar and also like on, <coughs> on uh, object-oriented ontology as well. So like, um, you know, continental philosophy comes from that object-oriented ontology where Every, where um, reality and, and events and uh, perception are, are analyzed under the, the dynamic between object and subject relationships, where the subject is the self and the object is the thing that the self is perceiving. And I think he's, you can see him packing that, that pun in there too as well. It's kind of poetic the way that he writes too. It's really beautiful. Um, there's whole paragraphs that kind of like, it's, it feels almost like mystical. Did he write this both... Is this a translation, or did he write one in German and then write one in English? He's proficient in both languages? I don't know, actually. I I would say, like, don't quote me on that one. I know that he wrote all of this originally in German. He probably speaks English. Yeah. I mean, if he speaks Korean and German, he probably does. Mm, Okay. Mm. We should find that out. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he describes it as, today, we're not subjects, we're projects. We're always something to be reinvented, always something to be striving for, always be working or judging ourselves and others. This is a biting critique of grind culture. You know, like, you, you know, you ever see the grind culture memes where it's like Squidward, he's all broken. It's like, let's get this bread. <laughs> yeah. He's just, he looks so defeated and out of it. Or people will like, they'll post things like rise and grind and they like go to McDonald's. Yeah. It sucks. I, totally I like the ones totally after sucks. the crypto crash where it's like uh, the, the, the Wojak is dramatically putting the McDonald's hat back on. It's like we're hiring crypto bros. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, the dream died. It might come back. We'll see. These compulsions we feel, it's, and we perpetrate these on ourselves. This is something we're doing to ourselves. It's like guilt, right? Guilt mm-hmm. is uh, useful in very small amounts. But the, the amount of guilt that I'm going to assume you or I or the average person feels is totally unnecessary and totally being perpetrated on ourselves by ourselves. So these compulsions we feel are 
or more efficient type of subjugation is how he would put it. It's a you're a willing you, you're a willing subject. You're willingly putting yourself into subjugation on part. It's given over freely, right? It's not coerced. Coercion's not required here, mm-hmm. which makes it a very highly effective and insidious form of a uh, you know slavery. You're enslaving yourself. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll break that down. We'll get more into that, right? Oh yeah. When we start to break down the different types of power regimes, it becomes clear how insidious this is. You mentioned it before, like the burnout. Depression and burnout are a crisis of freedom, is how he puts it. And freedom is a compulsion. Compulsion is slavery. We willingly exploit ourselves without a direct master. So it's a cleaner and more pure form of slavery. And, you know, he draws a direct correlation between all of this and like entrepreneurship and capitalism Mm -hmm. and how we always got to be on that grind, how everyone, there is no working class anymore. You're not a worker. You're an entrepreneur in the enterprise of yourself in service of capital. Absolutely. And uh, you think about this, how, uh, you know, if you work any position, the, the, you know, in, in a regular job, and it could be anything, it could be mid-level management all the way down to being a barista, you know, the, the language that's used by HR departments and hiring managers is all about like health and how you can be a better person. And it's very cult-like. Yeah, we'll break that down more later. Mm-hmm. There's a chapter called uh, Healing is Killing. Mm-hmm. And he also has another one. But yeah, it's in the corporate speak where they're, they're no longer managers. They're uh, motivational coaches. And the reason they become that is because motivation can be tied to a feeling. And basically, it's just there to exploit you more. It's, mm-hmm. it's to get more out of you for less or nothing at all. Yeah. And it's done with a smile and not with a, you know, with a frown or with yelling. Yeah. He, he mm-hmm. writes, laboring does not make us free. It makes us slaves to labor. The slave, in some ways, was also enslaving the master, right? Because the master works to keep the slaves enslaved. Master and slave are two sides of the same coin, the sides of labor. It's more of a of a, a exchange relationship. People have their roles in in life in the world, and you're kind of born into them. Whereas, like now, it's it's there is no defined line between either one. In fact, I would I would say that someone like like Jeff Bezos is just as much afflicted by this, you know interiorization of the slave and the master as you or I or anyone else is that there's there isn't a clear line between the masters and slaves now we're all interiorized beings that and balance that's both not to be insensitive to like people who are actually enslaved and forced to toil like we understand there's a difference but yeah but you know Jeff Bezos feels he needs to be Jeff like why hasn't Jeff Bezos bowed out why is he even still mm-hmm. a figurehead you have more money than God like what are you doing exactly I guess he feels he needs to be this person, right? I mean, he's a, he's the slave. He's a slave to himself in the enterprise of Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. It's this is another instance of paradoxes here. So, and I I think we can bring this up more heavily uh, later on when we cover the later chapters. But there's a point here that I think is important uh, to carry through. And just thinking about this whole idea is that um, that there there can still be uh, classism in the system. It's it's not like everyone is is equal. You know, it's just that everyone is is equally managed the same way you know whereas like in old power regimes there was a sovereign or or a master uh class and then a slave class this is different where there is still classism but it's not really based on whether or not you're a master or a slave but it's based on your behaviors and your your data and how you're predicted to behave um and we'll we'll get to that one later on yeah he he mentions in this chapter so like neoliberal slaves under capital, they have no friendships without a purpose. So I mean, he's describing us too, right? So mm-hmm. 
there are no more workers. We're all entrepreneurs. Neoliberals wouldn't even know what a purpose-free friendship would look like. As in, it's, tr- it's yeah. always transactional. What am I getting out of this friendship? Why do you need to be getting anything out of a friend? I mean, other than the friendship. He, I think he's like kind of arguing like, mm-hmm. we wouldn't even know what to do with that. And that we, in fact, it doesn't even exist for us. I, I don't think it's something that we understand or have ever known, really. I could push back on that a little bit. I feel like I have friends in my life who are just like, yeah, we're just friends. Mm-hmm. I don't need anything out of them, but I, I know what he's getting mm-hmm. at here. I think when I was younger and when we were younger, I feel like we experienced that more, more authentically than now. And I see the way it changes, like how every relationship is transactional now. You know, you think about like the guy who worked on a, on a medieval farm, you know, and he toiled for the, for the masters, for the, you know, the Duke or whatever. And then when he was done working for the day, all of the relationships he cultivated after that work was done were of his own free, free choice. Like, uh, you, you, your body was serving labor, uh, labor capital dynamics. But when you left that situation, you formed relationships with people that were, um, yeah, still kind of bound into some type of hierarchy, but not transactional the way that, um, the way that neoliberal capitalist relationships are. And I think how Han understands them to be. For him, I think freedom means just being amongst friends with no purpose, really. Mm -hmm. When being with others just brings joy. Yeah. And doing nothing for that. I think we we discussed this at length where it's like you do something for its own sake, not for the dependently originated uh, purpose of something else. You know, like I'm not going to meditate because I need to be smarter and have a better brain. I I, I need to sharpen my wits. Like, no, just stop driving yourself crazy i do this all the time Mm -hmm. personally like i feel like i have to do this or that we'll get to doing nothing yeah a little later the gospel of witness me or bear witness yeah he's he writes here marx also defines freedom this way but that we are utterly isolated in a neoliberal capitalist hell for marx individual freedom was a ruse he has a quote here Uh, a trick of capital free competition which is based on the idea of individual freedom simply amounts to the relation of capital to itself as another capital, i.e. the real conduct of capital as capital. So it's just capital serving its own needs through us mm-hmm. is kind of what he's getting at here, right? Marx, capital reproduces by entering into relations with itself as another form, capital through free competition. It copulates with the other or of itself by way of individual freedom. Capital grows in as much as people engage in free competition. Hereby, individual freedom amounts to servitude inasmuch as capital lays hold of it and uses it for its own propagation. That is, capital exploits individual freedom in order to breed. It is not the individuals who are set free by free competition. It is rather capital which is set free. And once that relationship is established in, in the biopolitical regime, where you do have workers whose bodies are necessary for labor, uh, it creates the necessary conditions for uh, a quite a different regime, which is um, that you find in neoliberal capitalism, which is a lot more invasive. I feel like he both likes Marx, but he, he definitely thinks Marx. I mean, how could Marx know what was coming, right? He, this is mm. a fighting critique of Marx here. He, he writes here, but counter to what Marx assumed, communist revolution cannot resolve the contradiction between forces of production and relations of production. And admits, admits no dialectic. Capitalism can always escape into the future precisely because it harbors permanent and inherent contradictions. 
Accordingly, industrial capitalism has now mutated into neoliberalism and financial capitalism, which are implementing a post-industrial immaterial mode of production instead of turning into communism. As a mutant form of capitalism, neoliberalism mm -hmm. transforms workers into entrepreneurs. It is not the communist revolution that is now abolishing the all-exploited working class. Instead, neoliberalism is in the course of doing so. Today, everyone is an auto-exploiting laborer in his or her, his, in his or her own enterprise. People are now masters and slave in one. Even class struggle yeah. is transformed into an inner struggle against oneself. And that's, that's pretty much, I think, like the thesis of the whole book. There is no political we anymore, which is why revolution is impossible. Marx's dictatorship of the proletariat presupposes a relationship of oppression and domination. This no longer exists. We turn the aggression on ourselves as auto-exploiters. So, I mean, this, this paragraph, this section really resonated with me. I mean, American capitalism has become so extreme, right? It's so, it's hard to even, it's we're not workers in any traditional sense. And he nails mm -hmm. us on the head when he describes all of us as like never ceasing entrepreneurs. It's made us all whores. We sell everything about ourselves to capital and labor. We borrow like a quarter million of dollars at an insane interest rate to buy an education you don't need to get a job that won't pay you what you're worth. Mm -hmm. The nonstop commuting and the mental energy we expend to maintain an income through labor is staggering. I guess the commuting has eased up in the age of COVID, but that just means it's turned your home, which should be sacred, and yeah, a place of relaxation exactly. into mm -hmm. just one more part of the never-ending enterprise of capital. It's, it's worse, in fact. Like, it's accelerated it. Because, like, before at least, you think about, like, the ubiquitousness of technology and how the cell phone moved your email and your communications, your tether to, to work to be something that was on you all the time well now your office doesn't even stay at your office now your home is your office there's no escape from it you're constantly on the clock you're constantly worried about work and i mean how could we not have runaway mental illnesses and anxiety and, and malaise because of this i mean people are so brainwashed because they'll like say things like oh i like my job it's not so bad you get bored if you didn't sell your soul to capital eventually like mm. what the fuck is that 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 is like a mind-bending lack of imagination on what our lives Absolutely. could be yeah like you do not need capital capital needs you that's what this yeah. is that's what he's saying here i think you told me uh a few days ago about how like the the purest sensation that I think you you feel like you've had was doing nothing, but like not doing nothing as like an escape, but doing nothing as like an end in itself. Yeah, like not even meditating, mm -hmm. like really just sitting down. Like I read an interview with him. It's not in this book, but he he talks mm -hmm. about apparently Byung-Chul Han is quite adept at doing nothing, and in fact he engages with it frequently. Mm -hmm. And I guess you could argue it's a form of meditation, but it's not. It's like sitting down in a room, and just being. Like, not with the intention mm -hmm. of meditating and just experiencing. When you become as awake as I feel, I, like, I'm, you know, through the help of psychedelics and these discussions, like, I'm really feeling that I've done a lot of spiritual growing. And it sounds like trippy, dippy, hippie bullshit, but you realize that just every moment is an intense psychedelic experience if you allow it to be. Just, just the, the, the awesome power of existing at all and being able to reflect on it is absolutely wild. So like sitting in a room on a, in a chair looking at nothing can be very intense if you allow it to be. If you're op if you're open to it. So let's take this time to uh, I give you permission to do nothing. Doing nothing is totally fine. There's no need to feel guilty about doing nothing. You don't have to grind and make everything mean something all of the time. It's perfectly legitimate to do nothing. It's probably even it's holy. It's sacred. Yeah. 
It's it might be the most noble thing you can do. <laughs> you know, I was I was telling you uh, the other day about how like I have I can't play video games anymore because I feel guilty. Like I'm not like you should be fucking learning or reading Python, or you should be doing yeah. this or that or... or writing or doing something to to push my career and my brand and my life ahead. But the reality is is that if I'm doing those things out of guilt and not because I truly enjoy them, then at, at, at on what level do I actually want to do those things? The truth is you don't want to do those things and you feel guilty because you don't want to do those things. Mm -hmm. I experience this all of the time. This man and this book gave me the unbridled joy I felt when I realized he he was validating what I've always felt and really have never been comfortable saying out loud is I never wanted a job. I never wanted a career. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to have that pressure to bring the bacon home and justify my existence in, in a manner that was so chosen for us via our culture and our time that we were born. I think it sucks. Mm -hmm. I've always rejected it. And I'm saying it out loud now. Like, it sucks. It totally sucks Mm -hmm. the way we have to live. Like, grinding all the time and just feeling you, like, just nonstop feeling like you have to be productive. Fuck that. We don't have to live like that. (laughs) And and you're you're being very prescient here, uh, saying it before we get to it. Byung Shul Han's ultimate solution to this problem at the end, I think, is rolled into that ideal. Yeah, so then I'll just say it again, baby. People need to be reminded it's okay to do nothing. Yep. You can do nothing. And and to exist on the peripheries, to not conform to the mean, and to do nothing deliciously is, I think, the highest form of morality. It's fucking awesome, <laughs> dude. Yep. And even like when, like, when I'm doing nothing... I've been like, dude. I've been watching The Wire for eight months. Like, it's just been on my television. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not even interested in turning other things on. You know, and I just skip to scenes that I like. I mean, that's me doing nothing. I'm just on the couch, like watching something I've seen a million. I literally know every line. I've picked apart every mm-hmm. scene. We we could we should do an episode on The Wire. You know, that's like a version of doing nothing. But he takes it even a step further. Sit in a chair in a quiet room, and close your eyes or don't. Don't like think you're meditating. Just be. And just do that for a while. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a crazy notion for people. Oh, I mean, think about it. the opposite is to just be afflicted by severe neurosis. I mean, we're not healthy living the way that we are, uh, having our internalized master and slave. And it, you, you really see it like in, in uh, manifest in online communities. And uh, you know, that's a really great example. Like, uh, you see how like people created like ghost selves of themselves online that are representations of themselves but are not actually the real thing that are kind of like egregores that are made out of data and are not actually the self and it's just another form of working it's another form of branding and when your when your avatar is harmed you feel the same pain yourself and when your avatar is loved you know and you click the like buttons come in and you get that shot of dopamine then you feel good too and it's created this strange, very, um, I think, maladaptive relationship that we have to versions of ourselves and not the actual self itself. You know, the you that's sitting down and not doing anything is the real you. The you that's on the grind set is a version of you that you've created to like an idealized version of yourself that does the things that you think you should be doing because the master is telling you to do that. And the master is yourself. Think about how much we hate ourselves because, frankly, people can't sit and do nothing. Like, it's a very difficult task for people. No, they can't. I mean, I can't even sit and do, like, 
a task that is a real task, but just feels like it lacks utility, you know, in a video game. Like I feel bad and I, you know, I can't, I physically can't play video games anymore because I feel so guilty. You feel like a bomb ass loser. Yeah, of course. And, and I'm aware of it, but I, but I, I've internalized the psychopolitical so hard that I don't, I don't think I'm fully able to escape it. And I've been feeling it too. I mean, I know the, the sensation of like grinding from one state to another and feeling just burnt the fuck out. And I feel burnt out and I don't do manual labor. I don't go out and like lift things in the sun and, and, you know, have a pickaxe and well, he, he build talks shit. About like that. We'll, we'll get to yeah. that, how labor is not even labor anymore. It's fake. It's fake email jobs and it's fake. It's, yeah. fake. it's not real. There's, there's no value being created. In fact, value is being eradicated. Exactly. I mean, I don't feel like I contribute value to anything. And I also feel like I've never been more exhausted mentally than I have being like, I don't know, this kind of service employee that exists in a, in a totally fake landscape of, of I, this isn't even, this isn't work. I don't know what the fuck this is. But like Han really understands that. It's busy work. It's busy work that society has dictated to you because you have to be yeah. busy. Why? Otherwise, you'll be out murdering people in the streets. Crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think people worry. It's like, well, if you were really free, think about the shit people would get up to. Okay, I'm thinking about it. It's the shit that they get up to right now. There's nothing bad about it. Mm-hmm. Like people get up to things. Whatever, man. We're so not free. He poses the question here: Do we even really want to be free? Didn't we invent God so we wouldn't have to be free? Before God, we are all debtors, guilty. But debt, guilt, destroys freedom. Today, politicians appeal to high debt rates to explain that their freedom to act is massively restricted. Free from debt, that is, wholly free, we would truly have to act. Perhaps we run up debts perpetually so we won't need to do so. That is, so we won't need to be free or responsible. Mm -hmm. Don't our debts prove that we don't have the power to be free? Could it be that capital is a new God, making us guilty and debt-ridden again? I I 100% agree with that. I mean, you, it's another case of just like perpetually passing the buck and never making an actual decision. And then like, you know, we can sit there surrounded by a million choices and then not have the freedom to actually make one that's truly meaningful or truly, um, that's truly free, that really represents something that we want. Um, and just put our arms up and just be like, I'm just going to keep doing this because this is the way it is. It's tough shit. He talks about um, the dictatorship of the transparency. Yes, which is, I mean, that, that's a, a quality of the psychopolitical that it's kind of like emblematic of our current time period. You know, if, uh, if the biopolitical is the age of, of control systems and of statistics, then the psychopolitical is the age of transparency, big data. And uh, and that makes oh it's transparent it's and good the grind. it's like yeah. well no everything's transparent mm-hmm. it's actually not good mm-hmm. everyone's watching over everyone everyone's a snitch neoliberalism makes us all consumers and not citizens and then the politicians are just here to deliver content is how he puts it mm-hmm. not affect positive change and we love them for it so transparency in politics is really just a game of people waiting to be shocked by scandal. Yeah, it's it's snitch. It's like passive snitch culture is what we all kind of you live know in. people today, especially like with the rappers and like our age groups, like don't snitch, never snitch. Everyone is snitching constantly on themselves. Constantly, and everyone, yo, whenever, yeah. whenever you see like a world star video of like people fighting, 
the people recording it and submitting it are snitching. They're, they're snitching, yeah. They're snitching. Just as bad as, like, a doxer or a fucking someone swatting somebody's house. Like, you're snitching. You're snitching. You know? You're a little bitch. You're a little pussy. Yeah. You're, you're, you are big brother. You're doing it. You're doing it to and us and they're doing and it. The worst thing about it is, too, is they're not doing it, like, they're not, they don't think they're doing it to snitch. They don't think you know, it's like, snitching. Like, to show the police. They don't look at it They like think that. they're, yeah, they, they're doing it for the likes. And like that is, is like so worse. much worse, <laughs> so much worse, because you're willing to throw someone else under the bus for something that's none of your fucking business. Yo, when you purely see a fight, for self-aggrandizement, when you see a fight, leave. That's it. Yeah. That's the appropriate. None thing. of your goddamn business. Or you could man. watch and be entertained by it, but mm-hmm. don't post it. Like, fuck that. Exactly. That shit is so lame. World star. The amount of people that have gotten arrested because of that shit. You know, it's endless. <laughs> So we don't reside in a passive surveillance state because that's what like um, a passive surveillance state is like when the state is doing it to you, right? Yeah, that's like 1984, the biopolitical right. sovereign is, systems. Which is a wild passive state. Today, we participate in it and we steer it. To behave freely, the future should be an open book, he writes, but the big data and our willingness to participate in contributing to it, the future can be gamed out, which means it, it can be controlled so nothing is free Mm. and everything is transparent we do this all the time i mean just signing up for your iphone you give up so much fucking information signing up for anything think about how many times you've given out your social security number to like some fucking bullshit job you were never going to get anyway Mm. it's just sitting there on a piece of paper dude i remember when they never deleted i haven't had facebook in 10 years but i remember like yo you you put where you went to school what classes you were taking what time you were taking them and with who where your dorm Mm. room was who you were hanging out with, where you were, it's just, just up for the taking. You're just giving yeah. it all And, away. like, looking back, it was, it was insane that we did that. And it's so much worse now because they save everything. Everything you do, every place you go, the GPS in your phone tracks you. Every search term you type into any search engine is tracked. Every single thing you do. I mean, now we even have, like, heart monitors and Fitbits and, like, things are tracking, like our biological processes onto these networks as well. And there are a few companies that store all of that information and they have, they know more about us than the federal government does. And they package and sell it to other companies and to the government itself. We did it to ourselves. We love it. We We're yeah, still do it. We gave it up. Yeah. You know, it's up to you really, if you're going to do it, you know, um, we, we all chose willingly to just offer up as, as a sacrifice to these companies, our, I, not not just our information, but if you think about it, like our identities. Because if someone can map out everything about what you do, they can create a pretty accurate psychological profile about what your subconscious desires actually are. And then they can game out the future. Yeah, which is what they do. It's, if, if someone can take uh, all of your data about everything you've ever Googled, everything you've ever done on the internet and make sound, inductive predictions about what your decisions in the future will be. And uh, there's even the possibility that those systems can become so sophisticated they can predict things like whether or not you're going to be successful at a certain job, whether or not you're going to kill yourself, whether or not you're going to get married. Like, and it's, it's very terrifying that so much about identity can be reduced to these things. And I, I think that as scary as it fucking is... Um, you know, Han has some some poignant analysis on it later on that I think is pretty cool. But it's spooky shit. I mean, I, I can't stand it. You know, I, I, I've been involved in tech for most of my adult life, and I fucking hate machines. And I, I try not to engage with them too much. 
I, I don't think they're healthy for us, but at the same time, I don't think we can beat Ted K and just go into the woods, you know? You can't, yeah, it's we'll, not possible. We'll get to that, because I, I yeah. know there's a part here. We're going to talk about, like, so, like, who is yeah. to blame and what is the solution? Like, you got to you got to run screaming mm-hmm. into the woods. We'll, we'll quickly game out how that's not a solution. It's not a solution. I mean, it, the networks are here to stay, and we have to find a way to live with them. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that, but let's wrap mm-hmm. up this first chapter. This book mm-hmm. is very small, by the way, Peter. It's 80 pages. You can read it in between yeah. shits. Everyone should read This book is wild. Like, this book, oof, cannot recommend this enough. I'm so happy you suggested this. <laughs> All right, here's my favorite fucking chapter. I mean, I'm sorry. My favorite paragraph in the whole book, which is saying a lot because every paragraph is wild. It's the last paragraph of the first chapter. Every dispositive, every technology or technique of domination brings forth characteristic devotional objects that are employed in order to subjugate. Such objects materialize and stabilize dominion. Devotion and related words mean submission oof, or obedience. I never looked at the word devotion like that. But it Mm -hmm. makes total sense. Smartphones represent digital devotion. Indeed, they are the devotional objects of the digital, period. As a subjectivation apparatus, the smartphone works like a rosary, which because of its ready availability represents a handheld device too. Both the smartphone and the rosary serve the purpose of self-monitoring and control. Power operates more effectively when it delegates surveillance to discrete individuals. Like is the digital amen. When we click like, we are bowing down to the order of domination. The smartphone is not just an effective surveillance apparatus, it is also a mobile confessional. Facebook is the church, the global synagogue of the digital. Drawing a comparison from cell phones to rosary beads, I just really, I really like that. That that really stung Mm -hmm. me. I fucking love that one. And I have for a while. Um, That's, if if you think about, like, what the rosary accomplishes as a devotional object right? so devotion is yeah. submission or obedience but it's specifically mm-hmm. you're de- you're generating it within yourself you're de- you you're the yeah. one doing it you're not being oppressed by the clergyman or the priest that told you to do it like you willingly choose to atone through the object that has power religious power because it's imbued with it the same way the phone is and you, you engage with it like a religious object as well. I mean, there are some days I probably spent six or seven hours on my phone. Like, just pick, yeah. picking it's it up. Oh, yeah. It's fucking terrible. And that's just like, that's six or seven. It's crazy how much time I am pouring into my phone. And I, mm. I can't seem to do anything about it. <laughs> and while you're doing it, you're, you're engaging in an act of ritualistic devotion. And you're also offering up your data as sacrifice at the same time. Because everything you do on it is is monitored and is is extracted and is stored dude on my worst days i probably pick up my phone and i open or close twitter without even really looking at it maybe 200 times or more it's hard to really gauge it like why am i doing like what is this and that's what makes it so much more sinister than a computer because the computer stays in one place it has a, a set and a setting even if it's a laptop it stays where it is but like this object goes with you everywhere it's invasive and it it, it uh it becomes devotional because it preys on the most low vibrational instincts of the human mind, which is that, you know, we want stimulation. Commands we want reward. your attention. You, like, you cannot pay attention to anything else. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's why we can't fucking sit still anymore. That's why there's no more Mozarts. I would even argue that, like, we're going to enter a point where there's not even going to be any more, like, fucking, you know, 
Metallica's because no one is going to ever sit down and learn how to play guitar like that anymore. <laughs> At some point, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like our attention spans are destroyed because we are religiously devoted to these objects. And that's something like, uh, I remember, like, that's a very Jungian concept too. It's like, regardless of whether or not you believe in God, everybody worships something and everybody has a religion. And what you spend most of your day doing, that is your God. And for most of us, that's staring at the cell phone and consuming whatever it is that we consume through the cell phone. For some people, it's social media. For others, it's pornography. For others, it's shopping. It doesn't matter. Texting, but all of it is, yeah. It's like you have a friend and you're close friends, but you see this friend once a month, but you talk for three hours a day on the phone. Yeah. It's like, is this relationship purely a relationship with the person or is it textured by, by being mediated through a devotional religious object? that changes the character of that relationship itself. And I wonder about that. Is like, is my friendship that I have with the people I text all the time, but don't see in person at all, Are we different even if I saw them in person? Yeah, like if I knew that person in person and I lived with them instead of texting them all day, would that relationship be fundamentally different? Do, do you and even I actually want- It would be. Do you even want to talk to the person you're texting, but you never- Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. It's worth, it's, a worth, it's worth asking yourself that question. Yeah. <laughs> Do I really know this person? Is, the, is the, the, the language of text, does it translate to the actual self? Or am I interacting with an avatar of that person? Why, why do I, I want to be alone? That's the case. But still, yeah. like, talk to people. Like, what is going yeah. on with that? No one did that before. You know, you would be alone and you would, you would sit with yourself and do something. And now, like, we constantly crave attention and interaction with something through the the reliquary through the through the object through the thing through the holy the holy screen this reminds me of a funny story i went to japan uh four years ago with uh, some buddies of mine i went with paul and i brought like a fuck ton of acid i brought like 20 hits of acid by the way if you ever get the chance to do acid in tokyo i highly recommend that <laughs> but i mean me and paul burned through 20 hits and like i don't know mm -hmm. we had ourselves a fucking time probably like five six days um, but there was a moment we were really high and like just my phone, right? Like I'm traveling and like, I'm constantly like, I'm taking pictures of shit or I'm like texting them or I'm looking up information or I'm looking at Google maps and I'm just like, damn, I can't get away. Like, I'm like, I should just be here, but like, I can't get away from this fucking thing. And then like me and Paul were just really high yeah. and we were talking about it and I was like, oh, I love myself phone. Mm hmm. <laughs> yes, 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 I remember the story. And we yes. la we laughed because like it rung true like I love myself phone. Like what the fuck? Mm -hmm. What is that? Like ugh. <laughs> I mean, I fucking get it, you know? It's it, it it's uh not just like your suspended ego or like your egregore of yourself, but it's also like the object you use to uh instantiate that egregore and that can just as much be a rosary as it is a cell phone. I love myself, rosary. Yeah. But this one's even better. It's like, you know, you have the pun rolled right into it. It's, it's cool. I like it. It's very poetic. <laughs> All right. Chapter two, smart power. Yeah. That's our timing this here. This is fucking nuts. We're going fucking yeah. long again, aren't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all right. Fuck it. So he writes here, power does not need to take the form of coercion. Violent power mm -hmm. is a lower form of power. Power functions effectively and insidiously when it's not even seen. The greater the power is, the more quietly it works. It just happens. It has no need to draw attention to itself. Power can say yes more than no. 
Power can per permit more than forbid. And when it does, it is incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. Power can use freedom to its own ends. The neoliberal capital power machine is a highly permissive machine that shines with positivity and buzzwords like self-care and growth and healing and optimization. We're not even aware of our subjugation. We don't make people compliant. It's not making people compliant. It's making them dependent. So this is like a form of power that doesn't silence us. It calls on us to share and participate to no fucking end. All of your feelings, all of the time, everything you're doing, everywhere you go. It's the like button. Neoliberalism is the capitalism of like. It just happens now that like it's emergent. Yes. Right? It's just happening. Like there's not there's no there's no one to blame here. If you're looking for someone to blame, you need to look in a mirror. Yeah. And I, I think this connects like uh weirdly also i mean it, it absolutely does so like these systems are are self-regulating and that's why like and they're emerging you know, as much as i'm they're just happening yeah exactly as as much as i'm fascinated by conspiracy theories i find that most of them are highly highly reductive and don't they're, they're they don't work because they're wishful thinking that project ideas about like what we think power is but that's not how it works there isn't a back room with a bunch of shadowy people making scary decisions and doing evil stuff like there is a, i mean that does exist network. there's probably like a series of yeah. balls that like run i mean it's corporations right let's just it's corporations that's true balls. yeah but like no single individual in any of those groups actually has but any, any power. Real power yeah. at all and that's like and that's the same assertion i made about someone like jeff bezos as rich as he is he has no actual power. He's still confined you know? to the limits of capital. By the way, I don't think yes. he thinks he's going to die. No, but he's going to anyway because he's just a substrate. He's just a body that exists to pass, like that capital passes through. So like, you know, you're more free if you live on the periphery than you are if you're a billion. Like, and I've, you know, that's just something that I've, you know, read a lot of different writers talk about, which is that like, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk are way less free than a warlord in the Congo is, you know, or, or even a mafiosi in New York that just like does what he wants. <laughs> because like, if you exist on the outsides of the system, to some degree, you have more sovereignty, like true sovereignty than someone who has infinite resources of money and still has to play within the confines of the system. The smuggler kings and the manufacturers and the golden triangle have insane amounts more power than... Way more. I mean, Way think, more. think about it. They could just order murder at whim. They can like assassinate yeah. all of that. Jeff Bezos can't do that shit. I mean, he he, he can maybe get away with it for a little yeah. while, but it'll come out. It'll come out. And we, he wouldn't even know how to do These it. These systems are self-regulating. Yeah, it's it's like uh like Curtis Yarvin's concept of the cathedral, where like power is not like shadowy figures or oligarchies that are clearly defined, but rather like a whole network of of different hosts of power, whether it's the clergy or the colleges or the or the banks, the government itself, all the different branches, the courts, all the different corporations, the local school board, and they all reaffirm the same narrative. And it self-regulates like a body. And there's no there's no head to it. It's a hydra with a million different heads coming out of every direction. So we can't point at someone and say, those are the masters, those are the bad guys, right? The only way that you could do that is if you come at it from like a mystic perspective, like Nick Land, where it's capital itself that is the basilisk. Like capital itself is the egregore, the, the monster, the demon. And it's like, it, 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 it imbues itself into all of us through those networks. <laughs>
We're never going to get out from under this. Not in our lifetimes. No. No. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're in the network. Like, this is like network spirituality is also network damnation. And like, finding a way to balance it is extremely hard because we're, we're frat, we're fucking apes, man. And like, it, I mean, yeah, we have higher functions. And, and, and I do believe that there's something more spiritual about us that's undeniable. But like, we still have feedback systems that are easily preyed upon by these by these network systems you know you get a dopamine hit from a like it feels like a shot of heroin and you you can exploit that to control people by just giving them more of what they want you know there's that little quote at the beginning of the book protect me from, from what, what I, I want, want. yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's so hard to even imagine because i could even imagine like a so when i think of communism I think of a form of communism that probably hasn't been practiced or ever really in any meaningful way. It's probably like a fascist form of communism too. But like mm -hmm. if you have billions of people with limited resources and everyone's going to get their share, that's probably the way you need to go. But it would look like everyone gets a place to live, but you don't get to choose it. Everyone gets health care. Everyone gets food, but you don't always get to yeah. choose the food that you're getting. And everyone ha has to be doing some sort of labor in service mm -hmm. of everybody else. So you're, you're still bound to labor there. Yeah. So I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to even. It's easier. I forget who said this. It's quotes going around. It's easier to imagine imagine like the end of the world than the end than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah, and that's that's like the problem with utopian solutions to anything is that it's very easy to come up with like whole entire bodies of philosophy about tearing down systems. But what do you fucking replace it with, man? You know, like, and that's even the problem with Ted. Like, what are you gonna do? Like. Ted's like, all right, you, uh, you have to end industrial capitalism. It's like, but what do you do? You go back to, you know, agrarian. No, he's like, he goes even further. Like, we got to go back to hunter-gatherer. And like, that's, <laughs> that's never going to happen because complexity moves upwards regardless of whether you can control it, you know? Uh, emergent systems will emerge. And the, I think the solution is more about, like, having the agency to control how you regulate yourself in it. And that's more on an individual basis than it is on like a group basis. Because I don't know if groups can solve these problems, you know. But maybe there's a solution for us individually. I think it's fucking hard, though. It's easier said than done. Of course, I mean, you know, we're, I, we're, I feel we're shitting on capital by this shit. But I, yeah. I have nothing to offer an alternative except maybe find yourself no. a nice little black market gig and don't pay any taxes. But you're still serving capital. You still are, yeah, because you're still within the confines of the system. You know, how many of us have ever been in a fucking fist fight? How many of us have ever had to farm or like really toil or work for something? Dude, I have a little, you I know, have a garden like, on my roof. Yo, it takes three months oh, yeah. for, from sea to get like a small amount of food. We are completely dependent on this system, not just physically, but psychologically as well. And that, that psychological dependency is what's breeding the neurosis that we've internalized. All right, let's keep it moving. These chapters are short, mm -hmm. so it seems like we're taking yep. up a lot of time to get through a few chapters, but they're going to start that's flying. That's true, that's by. true. So the mole and the snake, what, what was this to you? I, I, I didn't really quite grasp this, these two pages. Let's see. Oh, that was him talking about Deleuze. So, like, um, so like the Deleuze and Guattari, you know, uh, post-Marxist philosophers. I actually, I pulled this quote that I thought was pretty, pretty interesting about it. Um, so it's that according to Deleuze, the disciplinary regime, and when he talks about disciplinary regimes, he's talking about the biopolitical regimes. They're the previous incarnations of power before psychopolitics. Real, real quick, what is biopolitics? So 
All right, so this is good. So I think we can jump ahead to like the next chapter real quick before we circle back to this okay, to this ahead. metaphor he uses. What is biopolitics? So, yeah. Byung-Chul Han establishes three different tiers of political regimes or like power structural regimes. And the first one is the sovereign, which we all know very well. That's there's one guy in charge or one small group of people in charge and they exert power through violence. You do what I tell you to do or I kill you. And that's what monarchies are like emperors, you know, basically the ancient world forever, up until the point where, uh, where capitalism started really rising up, like mercantilism. And I would say even like capitalism prior to uh, the Industrial Revolution had some of the biopolitical attributes. The second kind is the biopolitical, which is that's industrial capitalism. That's the, the, the environment and the relationship that Marx was most familiar with, where there's the masters and there's the slaves. Uh, it's in, in biopolitical regimes, there isn't a king who like one guy who makes all the decisions. You can't have, you know, uh, you know, Caesar or Henry VIII in a in a, a, a capital system, because in a capital system, you have oligarchies, you have groups of owners and you have groups of laborers and the relationship is physical. And he uses an example throughout the book of the, uh, the uh, panopticon prison as like the ideal representation of biopolitical power. So we need, just to describe what a panopticon is, it's a, it's a, a cylindrical prison where there's a, a guard in the middle that can see what every prisoner is doing in each cell going around the, the center of the, of the prison. And he can see all of their bodies and he can observe them and he can exert physical power over them, but he can't get inside of their minds, right? <clears throat> he can only exert power over their bodies. And that's the relationship between labor and capital in the biopolitical. Uh, uh, the labor uh, exchanges the use of their body for something, money, something to eat and, and survive from capital, which gives it to them. And that's how the master-slave relationship is played out in the biopolitical. It is a, it's an environment of, of control of the body. The psychopolitical goes one further. The jailer in the center of the panopticon in a psychopolitical regime in your can see into the, so into the soul and into the mind of the prisoner. And because of that, they don't have to beat them or, or press them or use violence against them to control them. They do it with an open hand and a sugar loaf and tell you, <laughs> come here and do, I will give you what you want, everything you want, and you'll do what I tell you. And then there are no masters because the master then isn't even external. It's inside of you. And the system is emergent. There's no head. Biopolitics it's a network. exerts force over your body, and then psychopolitics exerts exerts force over your mind. Over your yes, okay. and it's and, and even further is that biopolitics has an explicit external master that oppresses the slave, that oppresses the capital, exploits labor. But in psychopolitics, there is no master. Capital and labor, the master and the slave, exist inside every individual every individual and that puts some le some degree of equal footing to us that there is that uh, so you and i and the guy working at the bodega down the block and jeff bezos and and joe biden all, and donald all trump all have business of ourselves yeah, yeah we all have an internalized master and slave and because of that there is no one person or one group we can point to and say those are the masters those are the people responsible because it's emergent it's a cathedral it's a network and I think that, you know, Han goes through like a million pages describing this 
I don't think we have to cover all of it, but I, no. I do feel the need to mention Foucault very briefly. Um, Foucault uh, wrote some really, really cool stuff describing everything up to the biopolitical regime. And um, he didn't go further. He never identified the psychopolitical nature of, of power. Uh, he lived in the 70s, the 60s. I mean, like he wasn't a guy who, uh, who was exposed to these things. It was a different time. But that said, Foucault's really cool. You should read him. He's amazing. Uh, and, uh, and Han really, really fleshes out the concept of the biopolitical through that. Um, but I really like this quote at the end of the, this, this second chapter, Mole and the Snake, which is, uh, or third, according to Deleuze, the disciplinary regime organizes itself as a body. It does. It's a biopolitical regime. The neoliberal regime, in contrast, seems like a soul. As such, psychopolitics is a form of government. And it's constantly introducing, it is, excuse me, it is constantly introducing an inexorable rivalry presented as healthy competition, wonderful motivation, <laughs> motivation, projects, competition, optimization, and initiative represent features of the psychopolitical technology of domination that constitutes the neoliberal regime. Above all else, the snake embodies the guilt and debts, die Schuld, die Schulden, that the neoliberal regime employs as instruments of domination. Okay. That last paragraph slaps. I got a little confused here when he was like, this is the ball and yeah. that's the snake. Yeah, because the mole represents the biopolitical. It's a creature that moves through, through, through like predetermined spaces underground while the snake is manifold and it moves where it wants. It's everywhere. The snake is in you. It's outside. It's in your enemy. It's in your friend. It's in your lover. It's in that homeless guy across the street. But the mole is defined to, combine, to confine spaces. The masters are defined. The slaves are defined. Capital is defined. Labor is confined. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. All right, we could probably skip the next two because you just did uh, biopolitics yeah. and Foucault's dilemma, right? Or do you want to... Exactly. I think the... Well, I mean, there's, I think there's things to pull from each one. Like for biopolitics, like disciplinary power discovered population as a productive and reproductive mass to be administered carefully. Biopolitics is devoted to this task. Reproductive cycles, birth, death rates, levels of general health, and life expectancy provide the objects of regulation. In biopolitics, the mass of flesh is, is the, uh, the thing to be exploited. You know, you need people to work the machines. You need them to have kids. You need them to have families. You don't necessarily want your industrial laborers to move up in society. You want them to stay where they are and to be happy doing it and keep working, right? That's, how, that's the relationship between labor and capital and the biopolitics. It's, it's of flesh and it's of control of the body. It's disciplinary. It's not, um, it's not rewarding, like like the uh the psychopolitic regime is right it doesn't say yes it says no mm -hmm. exactly i think we can skip foucault since we pretty much covered it like foucault just explains what the biopolitical regime is i think we can jump ahead to six which i know that you really like yeah healing is killing uh, i mean we healing is killing we, we love to be validated for the, the negative thoughts we've already been ha having everything's yeah. about healing and growth and motivation and if you're a glass half full kind of guy or a cynic like me, mm -hmm. like I've always thought this shit was insidious. Chapter six, healing is killing. Neoliberal capital politics endlessly grinds us down with new ways to self-optimize, heal and grow, but all in the name of capital, mm -hmm. right? Retreats, work seminars centered around how we feel and talk and how to further optimize not just capital, but oneself for maximum exploitation, basically. This positive bullshit only mm. serves to help optimize us within capital for capital. It's not about you or your health when you hear this shit. 
laziness and humanness and inefficiency are errors when you look at it. When you look at it this way, these are errors that need to be therapeutically eliminated. Whenever any of us are trying to improve ourselves while living under the yoke of capital, it's really just us trying to become better entrepreneurs and worker bees. It's not for ourselves, as we like to think, but it's for capital. It's for grind set. It's, it's for the guilt that you keep putting on yourself. It's not even our labor that is being exploited anymore. Like we just said, this work has become fake. It's just websites to manage or orders to ship. There is no real value anymore. This is exactly why everyone is burnt and depressed and absolutely fucking exhausted. This is why when you get away for two weeks on a vacation yeah. and you come back and you don't feel energized or that you even had a vacation at all. They're fucking hurting us. This nonstop psychic exploitation. Yeah, you can leave the job, you go on vacation, and you'll, you'll, you're, you're still on the clock. Yo, leisure... You never get away I, from I, Let's make this argument. Leisure time doesn't exist. No. When you have, like, even, like, a job of 40 hours, like, if you're a cashier or something, and you just work 40 hours, it doesn't sound like a lot to people. It really is. It's a fuck ton. Mm. It's a fuck ton of your fucking time, including commuting. most of your life. Including commuting or whatever. When you get home, you have a few hours for yourself, maybe, but then you have to go to bed so you can wake up and do it again. And what do you do with that time? You go on the internet. You go on the internet. You post. Yeah. You talk to people. You give people your data. You're still working for them. Even when you're... Well, not even them. Like, that's not even the right language. Like, working for them. You're working for it. You're working for, like, the thing. You know? The, the Rex Mundi. The Demiurge. <laughs> even, like, the vacation you go on. You, even if you had three weeks of vacation. It's all in yeah. service of capital. It's not even really vacation. There is no free time. It doesn't exist when you work like this. No. You're buying something, you're trading something, you're exchanging something, you're constantly engaged with some type of relationship where like you're either being exploited or exploiting someone else. And it's, it's, it's not even, it wouldn't be so bad even if it was something where there were like defined roles and it was externalized, but the fact that like you're carrying it with you everywhere you go inside of your own mind, like you're... Your ego and your id are always and we just, we sparring with each other in your head. Each other. So when you're yeah. on vacation and you see all the little worker bees running around the fucking um, resort or fixing your hotel or serving you your drinks, you, you're exploiting that. You, they're getting paid nothing. Nothing to do that. Dude, I can tell you something funny about me. Like when I'm depressed or whatever, or feeling very lazy, I'll do mm. Grubhub a lot. But I tip extremely well. Like mm. I tip 10 or $15 on when I order. I'm really doing that out of pity mm. and guilt. So... I, I, yeah. I would argue this. If like the Grubhub <laughs> driver pulled up and I spit in their face instead of giving them $15, it's the same act. Yeah, I actually knew a guy who said that to me. He said he never gives money to homeless because okay, it's a selfish act. you told me about that guy? Yeah. I think he's a fucking asshole. Yeah. So, yeah. He's dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> he died of a heroin overdose. Uh, but like he told me that, um, yeah, that he, he wouldn't participate in in charity because he felt like it was purely selfish by himself I, I think and he wanted to live authentic conclusion you could come to because where i'm at now is we're all god and the mm. whole point of existing is love i think he's right that doesn't necessarily make it the right thing to do <laughs> is is the way i look at it. but yeah this is like so you know, I'm never going to spit in the grove of drivers you know what i'm saying right like yeah giving them the 15 dollars out of pity and guilt on my part, I might as well just spit in their face. Like, or, mm. or just give them a couple of bucks like everybody else. But I'm not going to do that, you know? I feel bad. I'm going to tip them. I tip really well. I tip like 30% <laughs> at restaurants. Because <laughs> I, I, it sucks. These jobs suck. 
they kind of still exist in a, in a biopolitical landscape, you know, like people that actually still work on the ground and have normal jobs. Um, yeah, we got to put well, that well, on like, TikTok that you found off the Red Scare Reddit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good one. Uh, oh, it's it's a girl freaking out about like how she worked in food service her whole life and then got like a fake email job and how she realized that like the work she was doing prior was like actually valuable, whether whereas like what she's doing it was now, valuable, but not valued. Yeah, yeah, what she's doing now is valued, but is complete bullshit. Ugh. And it's true. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll we'll add that in the show show notes. Let's not forget to do that. Yep. He says that today the psyche itself is being exploited, and accordingly, psychic maladies such as depression and burnout define our times. Endlessly working at self improvement resembles the self examination and self monitoring of Protestantism, which represents a technology of subjectivization and domination in its own right, you know, like the Protestant work ethic. The ego grapples with itself as an enemy. Today, even fundamentalist preachers act like managers and motivational trainers, proclaiming the new gospel of limitless achievement and optimization. <laughs> Dude, he quotes Tony Robbins in this. I was delighted to see yeah. that. The imperative of boundless optimization even manages to exploit pain. Thus, the famous motivational speaker, Tony Robbins, has written... When you're set, when you set a goal, you've committed to C A N I, or CANI. It's an acronym meaning constant, never-ending improvement. Holy fuck! Imagine yeah. clapping for this shit. You've acknowledged the need that all human beings have for constant, never-ending improvement. There is a power in the pressure of dissatisfaction, and the tension of temporary discomfort. This is the kind of pain you want in your life. End quote. Tony Robbins. Everyone's clapping, mm -hmm. losing their fucking minds. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's a, a cult of constant self-improvement. And yes, you know, you want to self-improve, but you want to self-improve because this is you not want self to self-improve. Self-improvement This is self-improvement. Yeah, yeah. Is sitting in a chair and doing nothing and finding contentness yeah. and happiness. Self-improvement is having a friend where there is no transactions happening. Mm -hmm. Or it's having and people I, I that love you. That distinction that we put down is that it's the difference between doing something because you're doing it like you do it because of itself versus doing it for some external reason that's dependently originated witness me that, dude. witness it yeah just witness it be it be in it be of it do something to do it don't do something for some other purpose yeah don't, don't go to the and i know gym we talk about because you yeah. want to get more girls and you want to look better for women Go to the gym yeah. because the gym is a cathedral and it's a place of worship and it's just something you should be yeah. experiencing intensely and always exactly. doing. Because what else is and there? And you can experience revelation from the mere act of working out, not working out to achieve some other goal that isn't the work itself. And when you, when you do something for some external cause, it's hijacked in this manner where, yeah, it's the cult of constant self-improvement. You're going to do what? You're going to regulate your diet. You're going to work out. You're going to meditate even, right? These are things that are traditionally seen as healthy and good, but you will not feel healthier. You will not feel better. You will continue to feel worse because you're constantly chasing a goal that you'll never achieve, as opposed to just in being present in the moment and doing something to do that thing, not to do it for some other reason that exists in a in an abstract future. You've made it up. It's, unachieved. A, it's not real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this isn't healing. It's it's yeah. This isn't healing. It's killing. It's destruction. It's pain. Yeah. Where's the healing? 
and we 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 think it's healing because it has the language of healing you know like a wellness training and you know, mindfulness. They do mindfulness transcendental meditation in HR departments now. I mean, listen, mindfulness is to make is, you feel is better. great, but it's been a fucking yeah. hijacked, right? It's of course it has. Of course like it has. <laughs> and it's it's really easy and it's really smart for for um, you know smart power for psychopolitical power to hijack that because it makes a lot more sense to control people by saying yes than by saying no. You know, you get more, you, you catch more flies with money than you do with vinegar. And it's, uh, that's how it works. So, like, if you're yelling at your employees, yeah, you might have control over their bodies and you might scare them. But if instead you seduce them with the fabulous prizes they might get. <laughs> you might you know, get a, oh, then, let's do the severance. Waffle party! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> severance is a really cool example of this kind of sick HR positivity. <laughs> it's sick. Where, like, Everyone is slaved or enslaved, but they're all just doing it. And what I, I really liked about Severance, too, was that it really, like, captured that thing that we were talking about before where, like, there are no masters or slaves. All of the people that work in the management of the company in Severance are just as much slaves of the system that it's built on as the people that work at the bottom. Everyone is enslaved. Everyone is chasing constant self-improvement. Dude, this reminds me. I'll do a quick little story. My mom reached like X amount of years at her job. She does like, uh, well, I'm not going to say it, but she makes like 60 grand a year or whatever doing mm. uh, like in-house sales of renting like offshore drilling equipment, heavy machinery, shit like that, right? Yeah. She's working there for like whatever, forever, whatever it was. I don't even know, 10 years. So the company to mark this milestone just like made a video of like all the people who work there. So all the other workers just saying nice things about her. And it made her really happy. And when she showed it to me, I was seething. Yeah. Like, I wasn't openly seething because I didn't want to, like, take it away from her. But in my head, I was like, these motherfuckers, money, give money, fuck, this is performative yeah. bullshit. It's, I'm glad it makes my mom happy, and I'm glad she can get to a place where it made her happy, but it really made me sad and angry. Yeah, they're exploiting her using things that, you know, like friendship togetherness or the co-workers happiness. that like she likes her co-workers yeah. they're like you know they like each other it's that's fine i'm glad that that's a thing but this is what they did instead of mm -hmm. here's 10 grand here's a car here like think about the value you've brought into this company and this is what you get exactly it's fucking infuriating all right chapter seven shock can we bang this up? I think we can skip that. That's okay. mostly about bio biopolitic and naomi i love naomi klein the shock doctrine's a great book okay. uh no logo's awesome um but uh, I think it, he's just mainly providing background for biopolitical regimes. All right, cool. So let's skip and it. Like, I want to finish the whole book. Um, I don't want to take a yeah. break. I want to get it done. Friendly Big Brother's cool. Um, and and uh, this, eight, I think, warrants some mentioning. Yeah. Is like um, that there's, you know, we, we think that, you know, oppression is going to come from something like 1984, where there's going to be a, yeah, you know, he, a dictator that tells you to do things. Between 1984 yeah. and what we have today. So go ahead. What were you saying? Well, yeah. Well, well, 1984 is more like the biopolitical regime. Right. Like, it controls the body. It doesn't control the mind. Regimes that control the mind are more like something like Brave New World. It, tr it tries like, to control have the fun. mind, but, yeah, you know. Have fun, do cool shit, have sex, you know, do drugs. Like, it gives you things you want in exchange for your obedience, right? And also, it's different, too. Like, in 1984, there's people in charge that make those decisions. In Brave New World, there are no people in charge that make those decisions. Everyone just does what their role is. Um... He says, Orwell's surveillance state differs fundamentally from the world of the digital panopticon. That's the, bi the psychopolitical. 
which uses freedom to excess. Today's society of information is not characterized by destroying words, but by multiplying them without end. It doesn't, it doesn't reduce which is a, the language. Which is a form of destruction. It keeps making new ones. Because yeah. we have this now. People were worried about, um, what was it? like? They were worried about in the news or just information coming out, like uh, real information, like the leaking of real information. When really what the problem was is there's way too much fucking information. Yes. That's the problem. And it's endless, and we're just constantly being inundated with it. I don't believe fucking anything that I read anymore. I mean, this is making me a freak. I don't, I'm like, kind of, is space real? I don't know what to fucking think about anything anymore. I've never <laughs> been to space. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a valid way of analyzing some of this stuff. Does and Ukraine I, I even really exist? Is Ukraine, or, um, does it even exist? Is it a real country? I've never been there. I don't think we can pull any meaningful information about a lot of news stories anymore. No, and I, it recalls to me uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 when uh, the GW infected avatar of the colonel talks to, uh, <laughs> talks to Raiden and tells him, like, you know, what GW is, it's, it's, it's a regulatory system for garbage information. And that in the, in the near future, there will be so much information created on an hourly, minute basis that no one will be able to discern the difference between truth <laughs> and hearsay and conspiracy and just trash and what gw aims to do is to like contextualize that information it's going to be like an apocalypse of just it's a weapon trash information you'll never know what's true because of it uh and i remember playing that game when i was a kid (laughs) and like it's it all fucking happened dude like it's real he called it dude i want to play that again they should fucking release those i want to play the first one too dude the first oh yo you can get it on gog What's GOG? Good old games. You can download a digital copy of Metal Gear Solid no, 1 and play it on your PC Xbox, right now. Though. I don't want to play it. I, I hate PC shit because shit's always The PC is cool. All right, baby. Ah, it works fine. You can, you, but it if, works perfectly. Okay, you can use right, the controller. All right, all right. But to do yeah. the first time on PS1, Metal Gear Solid, yeah. Psycho Mantis, move controller 1 to controller yeah, 2. Yeah, it doesn't work the same way. That yeah. was fucking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I fucking love that game, man. Jesus Christ. So, like, here's this. In the digital panopticon, the illusion of limitless freedom and communication predominates. The digital panopticon lacks a big brother, wrestling information from us against our will. Instead, we lay ourselves bare voluntarily. And that's the psychopolitical. Big brother and the party control everything mercilessly in 1984 with never-ending propaganda, which comes from the Ministry of Truth. Obviously, the Ministry of Lies, right? The enemy of the people is brave. This is great, by the way. They make of a Jew. I don't know, like, how on the nose that was for George Orwell. But as branded by the party is Emmanuel Goldstein. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I think he was making a commentary about fascist regimes, like, scapegoating the other. And it was was a pretty Scapegoating Jews in particular. Yeah. Yeah, Okay, Mm. that makes sense. Orwell's surveillance state uses sleep deprivation, torture, and imprisonment to control people and thought. There is a section of the government called the Ministry of Plenty whose sole purpose is to artificially create a shortage and availability in goods and resources. That shit is crazy. Mm. So in this manner, Orwell's surveillance state is just totally different from what we have today, which you just said, the digital panopticon, the illusion of Mm. freedom. The, ex- the excess just absolutely dominates. No torture here, just Twitter. Just liking. We give up willingly, Tra- and we enjoy transparency it. Transparency replaces truth. Brig Brother is friendly. And it's the friendliness that makes him ruthless. Yeah. This begs the question. I mean, we touched on this. Who the fuck is running the show? It, it, you're, we no already one. answered it. Nobody. Yeah. It's, no, Nobody. we are. It's a cathedral. We're it's doing a it. Decentralized, decentralized emergent form of power. And we all participated in it together. 
capitalism is a trickster god. I mean, this is the devil at play. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's that goes back to the Landian idea that it's a well. I mean, it, it kind of was like an AI from the future invading the past through our bodies. But it's it can also be even more more uh, occult than that, where it's like it's it's a it's a, a not not a demon, but like yeah, like a chaos god. It's like the demiurge. It's like the great the grand architect. It's uh, constantly been exploiting the bodies of individuals to exist, uh, and at, at one point. We had some agency, you know, like in the biopolitical regime. The masters were masters and the slaves were still slaves, but now we're all the same mass. I sometimes think like everything that we're experiencing, all of it, just like from civilization, the dawn of like civilization forward, all like the different kinds of ways we've lived and what we do, how to get by, how to have an agreement amongst a consensus amongst a group or not. Uh, it's just God putting on different hats and like doing all of it. Like, how the fuck else can you explain any of this? Why is it just emergent? Why this was just a trick played on us centuries, millennia ago, and it's still working? <laughs> it's just God saying, fuck it. I don't know. Do it all. Fuck it, baby. Do it all. I, I, thought, I thought the Apple ad was funny here real quick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one to bring up. Because, like, it's, it's, it, he's using the imagery of 1984 to establish, like, the psychopolitical machine regime. Well, Apple aired that famous advertisement in 1984 at the Super Bowl, yeah. right? In it, the company presented itself as a force of liberation, which would counter the Orwellian surveillance state, and lockstep listless workers, evidently without a will of their own, march into a vast hall and listen to Big Brother's fanatical declamations on the telescreen. Then the ad shows a woman rushing into the assembly hall, the thought police in hot pursuit. Bearing a sledgehammer before her heaving breasts, she dashes forward. Full of resolve, she runs straight up to Big Brother and throws the sledgehammer at the telescreen with all the force that she could muster. It explodes in a dazzling burst of light. The assembled workers promptly awaken from their torpor. A voice declares, on January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Yeah, it's so But despite Apple's message, 1984 did not signal the end of the surveillance state so much as the inception of a new kind of control society, one whose operations surpassed the Orwellian state by leaps and bounds. Now communication and control have become one without remainder. Now everyone in his or her own panopticon. All right, so like last quip before we move on to emotional capitalism. You know, thinking about this, like who's to blame, who's in charge. I mean, Joe is the perfect president for our time because he's just, he's just I mean, let's be, we don't say this often because it's just, we're friends and it's true. It's just obviously true. But the president has dementia, right? Yeah. Joe Biden has dementia. Not an incendiary thing to say. That's what's happening. So he's a perfect president for our time. He's a truly empty vessel, right? Yeah. Trump and Obama were the same. Joe, they did nothing. They did nothing yeah. except Even Trump. I mean, these people were were figureheads that didn't actually get anything done. I mean, Obama got you know, like you had to go really far back. He got seven new wars done. Obama got new wars oh, done. Yeah. Like yeah. we did that. Trump did it. Trump like uh, who did they killed that dude? Uh, oh, uh, uh, Soleimani. But even then, like that was the State Department. Like they didn't make these decisions. Right. So I don't think Obama made real decisions. Presidents don't. I think the last do anything. Except, no. I mean, maybe Bush did something. He was probably the last president that did anything. What did he do? Yeah. He started World War Three. Can we call it World War Three? What do you think of that? It's it's still going on right now. It's World War Three, yeah. right? We're still living in the after effects of that. And, you and, and then he fucking really retired. He destroyed mm -hmm. Earth, retired, and started painting pictures of the soldiers that he had killed and maimed in these fucking wars. Yeah. 
Imagine being a soldier who you got your leg blown off at 18 for Bush, and then he paints you, and you meet him, and you hang out with him, and you think it's great. Yeah, and people do it. <laughs> I think that, that power uh, in, in uh, like American power, American federal power, reflects the way that these uh, regimes have evolved. You know, you look at something like a sovereign regime, where it's like based on violence, a king or an emperor. Early presidents were like that. You know, you look at someone like Washington all the way up until Lincoln, like, and even further power. up. I would, I would argue it goes up until FDR. Like, who ran the country when Lincoln was in charge? It was, it was Lincoln. <laughs> who ran the country when FDR was in charge? It was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. There wasn't any uh, delusion or debate about who actually had power. Whereas now, you know, it's like, oh, there's all, and then you see in the 20th century, there's these bureaucracies and this fragmentation of power. It's like, okay, so now we're moving into industrial capitalism where there's councils or groups of masters ruling over groups of laborers. And you see this as like sovereignty slowly yields power away. The sovereign starts to distribute into the group. And then as it starts moving towards psychopolitics, which is everything after like the postmodern period moving out into like the 80s, 90s, and up to now, you see like where it's becoming increasingly like who the fuck actually makes decisions. We don't even know because it's all networked out. Like you can't point at anybody like, you know, as angry as people get about Trump, like what the fuck power does Trump actually have? He has none. He didn't do any meaningful change at all. He didn't do any of the things he said he was going to do. They're like, oh, he's going to usher in a new Nazi age. Like the dude fucking didn't do anything. The same way that Biden likewise right now is doing absolutely nothing. And it seems to just be kind of unfolding you know, without a, a driver or any type of, of control system, because it's all self-regulated. I think it's a, it's a reflection there is, there is of, no sovereign. of God, because, like, God is just, God has no will and actually has no power, because, like, you and I are mm. God. We're just in it. It's just something that's happening. Power can be, it's, that's true, but power can also be distributed in certain ways where it's, like, focused more. What we're seeing now is like it's like total networkization of power, total distribution of power into self-regulating systems that more in a weird way kind of reflect the way that nature works in a in a very fucked up kind of way. Whereas like when you have sovereign power, you know, you have like a single sovereign authority that makes decisions and that, that those decisions are enforced through violence or like physical domination. And that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, does God like does God then hand out like total democratization of power by giving everybody what they want and making them miserable in the process? I don't know, but it's, um, but it's weird. Like, I, I don't know if I can identify these changes in power dynamics as like reflecting anything I think about the mystic. I think it's just like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I do think that there's something very sinister about capital as like a, like a demiurge like figure that it it's like a, like a, like you said, a chaos god. It's it's uh, that we're not in charge. Capital is in charge, which is Land's thing, and I I kind of gravitate towards that a lot. And I don't think that's God. I think that's that's something else. That's a demiurge. That's like a lesser being. That's a that's a chaos demon or something. Like the true God isn't operating through these network systems. The true God isn't even present. The true God is asleep. The true God is like Byung-Chul Han's final uh note in this book idiotism is an idiot god it's uh it just it's it has no thought it just is distributed without judgment and without without will mm. all right let's work our way there emotional capitalism chapter nine i mean we talk i feel like this reflects a lot of healing is killing but um 
emotional capitalism is is uh is psychopolitics it's it's the how capital exerts itself through affect through uh satiating our desires and satiating our emotions that's why your hr director wants you to feel good and wants you to talk about your feelings and wants you to talk about your identity and why they have like you know employee resource groups that are about like diversity groups and you know whether or not you're a woman or a man or queer or whatever and like everybody wants you to be happy and wants you to open up at work now because they want to you know have you you know be affectual and be emotional more yeah the digital medium is an affect medium digital communication fosters an immediate release of affect a catharsis emotions are not constitutive but performative they refer to actions and deeds emotions are dynamic situative and performative emotional capitalism exploits precisely these qualities feelings in contrast cannot be readily exploited in as much as they have no performality uh, performativity finally affects are not performative so much as eruptive they lack performative directionality so he's drawing a distinction between emotions and feelings that emotions are merely like the the uh the physical representation the evidence of a feeling a feeling is internal a feeling is contextual and he does the same thing later on with data, mm. that there's a difference between like data understood as reason, as context, and data understood as just, just total full spectrum knowledge. Like you can know everything about a person, but if you don't know the context of why they are what they are, you won't know them. And that's how, uh, that's how psychopolitical regimes act within the realm of the affectual. It's about regulating and understanding your affect, your emotions, not why you feel that way. He goes on to describe it as um, we consume emotions, not goods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So emotions can be consumed endlessly. Goods cannot. There is no limit to consumption of feelings and emotions under neoliberal, merciless capitalism. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it consumes via emotions. He quotes, consumer capitalism, which derives its profits from emotions. Moreover, consumer capitalism operates through the selling and consumption of meanings and emotions. It is not use value, but a motive or cultic value that plays a, constit a cons constitutive role in the economy of consumption. Emotion comes to possess value for capitalism only when a switch to immaterial production occurs. The neoliberal regime deploys emotions as resources in order to bring about heightened productivity and achievement. The actual thing that's being bought and sold in that case is, you know, like what Han is describing is that, feeling. you know, it's, it's the feeling, it's the emotion of being something or desiring something. I mean, we do this when we just buy things because we're bored, mm -hmm. right? We're all guilty of this. Emotions provide raw material with which to optimize corporate communications. He quotes Hewlett Packard here. HP is a firm where one can breathe the spirit of communication, a strong spirit of interrelations where people can communicate, where you go towards others. It is an, and it is, it is an effective relationship. Bro, it's a fucking job. <laughs> it's work. <laughs> God, they really get crazy with this shit, don't they? It's incredible. I mean, but it's, it's not surprising. I mean, that's how exploitation works, and that's also, like, how emergent and network internalized systems function. Like, I, we're not even aware of the fact that we're enslaved the way we are, which I, I, I love about this. Even in our awareness uh, right now, that awareness is fleeting. Mm -hmm. We go right back to doing it. Yeah, I mean, you said this to me yesterday. It's like, you know, I could, you, we, somebody can know all this, learn all about it. 
and still then just go back into doing the same routine all over again tomorrow. Well, it's what we do. And we talked about like, how the fuck do you escape this? You like, do you run into screaming into the woods? Well, you need land. So you got to buy some land. You need, you need material to make a house. If that's what you're going to do, you got to buy materials and you got to have know-how you got to get tools. You probably got to hire laborers and then you got to grow your own food, right? But how are you going to get the seeds and all the equipment you need to do that? Are yeah. you going to steal everything? I, I would argue even thieving is you're still engaging in capital. Yeah. So and any of that process, you're engaging with in non-stop with capital. You, yeah. How do you escape this? Through through, You can't even hang it. You got to buy a piece of rope to hang yourself with. Unless you just go steal it, you're still engaging in it. <laughs> yeah. And even then, you might still be engaging with it by doing that act. <laughs> All right, can we move on? Yeah, I think uh, the next the next space to go. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of chapters in between here that I think are kind of useful. Um, well, like gamification, gamification, chapter ten, which which describes like you know some of the the modes of how uh, big data you know seduces the self. Um, we we're all exposed to this uh, when you're scrolling on Instagram or Twitter. It is a slot machine and it's hijacking your dopamine receptors. It's, it's, it's manipulating the way that your brain functions on a physiological level to get the response of addiction from you. And these things were designed that way. And yes, they were designed by people to be that way, but at this point, they're designed by systems to be that way. Every single thing we interact with, every UI is designed to be addictive. And that's not a decision anymore that like, you know, people, people blame, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and they'll make a mean movie about him where he's like, oh, I want to take everybody's data and I'm going to get people addicted to computers. Like, if it wasn't Mark Zuckerberg, it, it would have been a thousand it would other have been Mark Zuckerberg. That, that was always yeah. emergent. It was just happening. It was emergent. He is not key or responsible in that system existing the way it does. It would have existed no matter what because it's emergent, because this is, this is part of a psychopolitical distributed power network. Mark Zuckerberg is not special and does not deserve the money that he has. End of story. No, and even with the money he has, he doesn't have the power that people think he has. He may live more well-off than other people, but he still is as powerless as any of us are because he still is within the same confines of the same system. I don't understand how you could accrue that much money and still even pretend to be interested in the thing that you made or run to make that money, and then also you haven't given most of it away. I don't mm -hmm. understand. I don't think he can. I think that that, that is... That there is an example of the internalized master-slave relationship ah, that yes. Han is exemplifying. If he, maybe there's a part of him that wants to go and like live in the third world and be a king. He is powerless to make that decision. He is enslaved. He cannot do that. I guess that's what it is because it really boggles my, dude, if I've had a hundred billion dollars, I would instantly mm. give away uh, 99 of it and then I would just fuck off. Yeah. Like what else is there to do? I don't, Theoretical. I don't understand. But if, you're, but if you're tied into a system of infinite progress, of constant change, where you always have to be self-improving. Well, I would break that cycle, which is it's why, possible. Never, why I'll never be a billionaire. That's why you are one of, you're what Han is describing at the end with, the, with idiotism, which I think is really powerful. Um, with, with, with Zuckerberg, he, he can't even have that idea because it's not possible. It's not a, it's not a concept that he can have where he can be untethered, where he can be free the way a warlord was 500 years ago. That's not something that exists in his mind. The only thing that he knows to do is to continue progressing. And so in that sense, he is not free. 
And now, uh, which I think is probably the most focal chapter in this whole thing. And th this one, uh, there were moments where I, I found there were areas that were hard to understand, but it's, it's extremely poignant. Uh, chapter uh, 10 so or? Ch chapter 11. All right, you uh, are, we're which... skipping gamification. We could do big data. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Real, real quick, let's just summarize. Gamification, it's, like it's, it's how everything is made into a game now. Yeah. Which it's, gets it's you... How... Yeah. User interfaces are designed to keep you constantly interf interfacing with them. I mean, we're, we're familiar with the UI of Facebook or any of these social networks, and they're exploitative. And it's, it's not even just like the UI on the screen. It's like the practical like, notion of how systems are designed, like how your job is, is functions or how like, your HR department functions. Like things are designed to keep you on the tether of constant self-improvement. So we subjugate ourselves into very active playing. You know? Yeah, it's everything is a fucking slot machine. Yo, no, I want to stay on chapter 10 because there was some fucking yeah. good shit in here, okay? Dig in, um, dig in. Yo, when he talks about liberalism and how they focused on the liberation of labor instead of liberation from labor, that, like, yeah, I remember that. Fuck, yeah. that made my soul mm -hmm. sore, you know? Like, labor is the scandal. Exploitation of labor is a scandal, but the bigger scandal is labor itself. So, this goes back to earlier what we were saying I give you permission to do nothing, right? I never wanted a fucking job. I never wanted to do that shit. I'm thoroughly tired of chasing money. I mean, I'm over it. I hate money. Normalize doing nothing. Dude, I remember one time years ago, I woke up. Uh, nobody be scared by this story because I, I never actually was going to go through with it. But I woke up like early years ago. I think I was living in Brooklyn. I was just having a particularly busy day ahead of me. Like gym. I had a bunch of fucking chores. I think I had like two dates lined up. I had like 10 clients to see, people were still calling me, and then I was like supposed to help my parents like move something. I don't know, I just remember I woke up that day and I was like, God damn, I don't wanna do fucking any of this shit. So I fashioned a noose out of like some electrical cord that I had just to like look at it. And to, I, I never was gonna hang myself, mm -hmm. but I just, I wanted to feel the power of, I could do it. I could, I could, I could do it right now. Like in a very non-dramatic yeah. way, right? Uh, you know, I was never going to do it. I just wanted to feel the power of that. And I imagine some people, they say like when people are getting ready to kill themselves, they like experience a burst of joy and they like give their things away and they seem like they've been, they're in a better mood than they've been in months or years. And it's because they've decided that they're going to kill themselves and they're overcome with freedom and joy. <laughs> Because in that sense, it might be one of the first, like, truly free acts that people actually do. It's not something that's based on, on internal or external exploitation. It's going home. <laughs> I love to go home. We love to be home, right? Oh, yeah. All right. Let's see. He talks about, so um, we are creatures of luxury, but luxury is not what you're immediately thinking when you say the word luxury. It does not mean consumption. Luxury for Byung-Chul Han is a mode of living that is free of necessity. So luxuriance is to get away from necessity, but neoliberal capital has turned luxuriance into a necessity, an excessive form of consumption, which is the opposite of freedom. For Byung-Chul Han, true happiness comes from what runs riot, lets go, loses meaning. It comes from luxury, the leaving of work and need and purpose. So, you know, capital has stolen this and totally devalued it, strips it of its original meaning. And the gamification as a means of production has destroyed playtime's potential to set us free, even for a moment. And then he has this story. Sorry, I know you wanted to move on, but like he has this. Story. No, no, keep going. The Greek kids, and the, at the end of chapter ten, the Greek children who 
I guess they wandered into like a um, an abandoned house or something, like a piece of property that wasn't being attended to, and they found a bunch of money. And what they did with it was they shredded it up and threw it at each other, and they just played with it. Yeah, which is true play. It's devoid. It's it's an act that's devoid of of an external. It's purpose. profane in that you're profaning the money, but it's a profane is a good thing here, though. Profanation, uh, profanation means taking things that belong to the gods and were therefore removed from mortal use and returning them to human beings to do with as they will. The Greek children were profaning money by handing it over to an entirely other use, games and play. In a single stroke, profanation transforms what is so fetishized today, money, into a common toy. Damn, he must have loved that story when he read it. Okay, we can move on. That's good. All right, you want to take the reins on Big Data, baby? Yes. Um, so. He establishes this concept of dataism. It's like a religious, mystical take on on big data. So, what what is big data? You know, big big data is a massive industry that exists in the United States today, in the world today, really, of collecting every single thing that everyone does and that uh, every sensor on the planet senses and storing it and then using it for everything from making predictions about the future to selling products or uh, you know doing military surveillance i mean it's it's there's not there's no one single use of this information but it's constantly being stored um everyone and everything and every object and everything that can be measured or observed and uh surveilled is being surveilled at the same time all the time there's nothing that you do on a machine on a phone on a computer that isn't being stored and even when you try to hide it it's being done anyway so what is what is big data um, and how does this compare to utopian visions of, of the future from previous regimes and, and, and previous movements? And, and his two uh, big examples that he uses here is he draws a distinction between the first enlightenment and the second enlightenment. Uh, the first enlightenment, which we know is the time of John Locke and Rousseau, and, um, and this is you know, roughly between the 1600s and the 1800s. Uh, and this was a movement that was based mostly on statistics, which, like big data, was a a myth it was this idea that if we could measure everything that if we could predict the outcomes of things we could uh we could move beyond superstition and uh usher ourselves into a new era of knowledge and logic and a lot of the same arguments for that utopian idea of statistics are also being used for the utopian idea of big data that han calls dataism mm. um and if we look back at the Enlightenment and the utopian visions of statistics, it's like, what did that actually lead into? Well, it was total ignorance. Causation and, um, and correlation are different. And what we had after the Enlightenment was centuries of barbarism and, and slaughter, uh, peaking in the 20th century, you know, possibly the most deadly century in, in uh, recent human history. Uh, so the Enlightenment didn't actually create a utopian future, and Han would argue as well that uh, big data and the era of dataism does not either. So he, he says he talks about how big data operates as an extension of the panopticon concept, whereas the panopticon ends at the body. Big data penetrates the mind of the subject, assessing previous behavior and predicting future behavior. The implication of big data as a tool of neoliberal capitalism are fully understood when observed at scale. He quotes, Digital surveillance proves so efficient because it's aperspectival. It does not suffer from the perspectival limitations characterizing analog optical systems. Digital optics enable surveillance from any and every angle. It eliminates blind spots. 
that's you know surveillance of the panopticon you can see the body you can say what people are doing but this is different this is inside the mind total domination in contrast yeah total full spectrum domination of the mind or of what your subconscious actually desires um in contrast to analog and perspectival optic optics it can peer into the human soul itself uh and you know of course you know we call back to mgs2 you know they they pretty much called it there kojima's a, a prophet <laughs> so dataism <laughs> um is is what han yeah you know, the death stranding and then like covid hit Oh, it's such a perfect metaphor for COVID. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's it was just, so weird. It the guy becomes, like it's like it. a Grubhub driver, but it's during yeah. like a, a time of intense, an play. apocalyptic yeah. event, and he's using, <laughs> he's fighting demons with a suit powered by babies, and it's like it's, it's ridiculous. But there's so much metaphor in it. Yeah. Um, so Han he likens dataism to the first Enlightenment's fetish for statistics as a nearly religious solution to understanding the nature of reality. And the nature of behavior um, that a Voltaire and Enlightenment thinker, thinkers understood uh, through statistics as a new histography uh, that sought to replace previous myths of superstition. Uh, but this doesn't work. It doesn't work because, like big data, the statistics uh, revolutions measure by the most common outcomes. They predict via induction, which is like you take what's measured before and then you predict what's going to happen in the future. Uh, Han quotes Adorno that false clarity is only another name for myth, and that Adorno would say that the transparency, which is, you know, as we talked in the beginning, is what defines psychopolitics, that that transparency of today is another name for myth too, and that data, dataism is false clarity. Mm. He goes on to quote that, in complex situations that intuition is blind, big data assumes that additive data, and this is the same misconception that statistics have, that it can free knowledge from the subjective, that it can create a fully objective form of knowing, that it, but uh, it, it does not. It, what, rather, what it does is it represents a subjective stopgap. If the first enlightenment focused on statistics as an additive age, then the second enlightenment is a data-driven knowledge age. The age of big data rips context and true knowing away from knowledge that it declares. Mm. And this is, this is a quote, that he has is like, uh, who knows why people do what they do the point is is that they do it and if we can track and measure it with unprecedented fidelity with enough data the numbers speak for themselves which is i mean that's Bone that's shell. a hegelian understanding of total ignorance it's like you can know everything about the universe but then be totally ignorant because you have no context with which to understand it and that's what we're doing with big data it's what the Enlightenment thinkers were doing with statistics. That's what's going on with God, too, because I say this. It's like, you can't know everything without also knowing nothing. How do you even engage with knowing everything? Yeah. Well, that's like the, the, like the, the romantic notion I used earlier. It was like, you know, God, God doesn't have an agenda because God doesn't have context. God is just this, it's this like thing the, happening. The, the idiot God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have desire. Like, if capital is a god, it's more like a demiurge. It's more like an archon. It's a, it has will. It has desires. God has no desires or will. Capital does. I would argue God has no fucking power either, frankly. Yeah, it's everything. It, and and, and in, in so being is powerless, in a way. And, and I don't know so much is really not a god. So god that. is both god yeah. and not god. All right. Yeah. We did our paradox. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an un enough acid for that right now. All right, now. that's fine. <laughs> Let's keep it but it's true. Though, no, it uh, is. I don't want to go too mm. long. Gotcha. It's hot in here. Um, I can't turn my air conditioner on when we record. I, gotcha, I gotcha. Out of that. All right, go ahead. 
So, um, yeah, the first enlightenment uh, values reason over imagination, corporeality, and desire. And the move, this movement led into the barbarism of the 20th century. The second enlightenment, which is what we're, lead, we're living through right now, switches reason for information, data, and transparency. It is a dialectic that threatens to repeat the same mistakes of the first enlightenment, summoning, summoning forth what Han calls a new kind of violence. <laughs> Han establishes that with the dialectic of in the enlightenment, the process of illumination that sets out to destroy mythology becomes entangled with every stride it makes. It is a mythology of its own. False clarity is only another name for myth. Transparency of today is another name for myth, too. The dataism uh, heralds false clarity, and it in turn becomes a new form of barbarism. He goes also into this idea of the quantum... Oh, go ahead. No, it's funny. Go, baby. It's great, yeah. yeah. Mm. I didn't get through this chapter. You're in command. Go for it. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and then he talks about this concept of the quantified self, which is, yeah, we're covered in fucking sensors all day. If it's not from our phones, it's from things that are measuring, like, stuff about our bodies, and it, it counts things about us. Um, this is, I think, a really important quote. No insight into the self can recount, can, uh, can result from data and numbers alone, no matter how exhaustive they are. Numbers do not recount anything about the self. Counting is not recounting. A sense of self derives from giving an account. It is not counting, but recounting that leads to self-discovery and self-knowledge. So the data that's getting collected about you important. all of the time is actually yeah. false. It doesn't actually yeah. tell you anything. It just tells you... It, that's Exactly. That's, that's the escape. So, like, yes, it's horrifying because it can predict your subconscious desires and it can predict your future behaviors, but in a way... It, it's it's total ignorance like it doesn't really know anything about the actual you right so while it's while it's extremely powerful and extremely exploitative and extremely dystopian i would say on top of that there is a way out of this so in and that it's actually not valuable at all yeah well it both is and isn't at the same time and it's it's and that isn't is what gives us true power in the end okay in antiquity the whole business of knowing and caring for the self I mean, that's all that anybody talked about, right? Plato, Socrates, that self-observation. An, an unobserved life is not worth living. Yeah, exactly. An unexamined and big data. Life, whatever. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. That's, a, what do they call it? Publicatio sui, uh, searching for truth. Mm. Big data can't do that because it has no context. Uh, correlates and causation are different. Big data is, is, is the business of correlation. It's like, oh, these things might be connected with each other, so we can infer something from it. But it doesn't actually draw causative relationships, which are like, this happens because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this. Instead, it's, well, this happens, so that's all that matters. And we can draw conclusions from it as, as correlates instead of causative, causative, uh, causative relationships. And that's why big data ultimately tells us a lot, but it tells us nothing. And then if we go like deeper into another, the understanding of paradox, the... great. Fucking exactly. Great. It never fucking ends, dude. Uh, so like, what is it? Uh, right now, everything we search, everything we click is logged and a complete picture of our online life exists. It approaches a perfect likeness of who we are, but completely without context. Right. And it also lacks the aspect of forgetting. Which means it can't it's be fucking interpreted. It can't be interpreted and it also can't be recontextualized the way memory is. Because forgetting... Mm -hmm. is important for like that's how we record history that's how we understand our ourselves and how cultures and communities understand their past memory is in the mind it, it's living and fluid and it changes through the ego of the self 
and the macro ego of the collective consciousness. Memory of big data is perfect recall. Uh, and this is, I think, a really cool line that he uses. It's memory undead outside of the temporality of the living. Holy fuck. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not living memory. It's, it's undead. undead memory. Yeah. Because it's just a perfect copy representation of whatever happened. And he goes into the concept of the digital unconscious, which is that, yeah, if you take uh, everybody's data from like a population and you measure all of their behaviors, you can predict their future behaviors and you can play around with the system and poke new information in there and manipulate people. And it works uh, because it does. Um, it's fucked up. But that's that's it's true. Uh, and that's why we're miserable and why we feel so manipulated right now. Um, these desires that we that are being exploited bear psychic proximity to the Freudian id. And he says that it escapes the ego and consciousness. It is, uh, it is this uh, light big data is making the id into an ego to be exploited psychopolitically. Think here mass manipulation of desires, you know, patterns across groups and subgroups. And of course, corporations exploit this. I mean, that's, that's what they do. They package and trade these, these um, huge masses of information. Uh, and then comes what I you know, thought was probably the most difficult part for me to understand in the whole book, but I think is crucially important. And that's a, um, he has a Hegelian distinction between the notion of spirit um, and how it's being driven from knowledge. He says, that for Hegel, the philosopher of spirit, that he would deem the omniscience of the Alvisen of big data, that it promises to be the absolute Im ignorance of the Unvisen, which is no knowledge or no understanding. Big data affords only an extremely rudimentary knowledge, that is, correlations in which nothing is comprehended. Big data lacks comprehension. It lacks the concept, and thus it lacks spirit. The absolute knowledge intimated by big data coincides with absolute ignorance mm. the concept is a unity that includes and comprises the elements of the whole that it is it takes the form of a conclusion in which everything comprised is comprehended and everything is a syllogism which means everything is a concept absolute knowledge is an absolute syllogism big data is purely additive it never comes to an end to a conclusion in contrast to the correlations and additions that big data generates, theoretical thinking represents a narrative form of knowledge. The spirit, by contrast, is a conclusion. It's a, it's a syllogism, an integral whole in which component parts are meaningfully preserved. Spirit constitutes the world's interiority and composure. It's what gathers and composes everything within itself. He argues on like spirit as a Hegelian concept, kind of similar to context. It's like, why do people do what they do? Not just here is what they do. And that's the distinction. Mm. Damn, dude. <laughs> yeah. So how do we fucking escape this? And uh, he has an interesting idea in the end. All right. He's like, be an idiot. You have to be an idiot. And it's, and I think it's fucking cool. Uh, and that's like, he starts this in chapter 12 with going beyond the subject. The event which annuls what is held until now, the standing order proves just as incalculable and abrupt as natural disaster or acts of God. It defies all calculation and prediction. When it occurs, entirely new states of affairs begin. The event begins into play outside, which breaks the subject open and wrests it from subject subjection. Events represent breaks and discontinuities. They open up new spaces for action. And this is what he's referring to as the naturefication. He's like, how do we escape from this, from this prison that we're all trapped in? 
The art of living as the praxis of freedom must proceed by way of de-cycleization. This serves to disarm psychopolitics, which is a means of affecting submission. When the subject is de-psychologized, indeed devoided, it opens into a new mode of existence and still has no name, an unwritten future. How do we do that? We have to be trolls. We have to be ungovernable. <laughs> we have to be idiots. We have to be idiots because if we can be predicted, we can be controlled. And we have to divorce ourselves from that, from that premise. And that's, that's, I think, like the one silver lining he has here is that idiotism, what he calls it, is the solution. Yeah, he, Today, it seems... Go ahead. Yeah, he writes, uh, you know, the roles of philosophy is to play the fool with the idiot. Yes. That's the whole point, right? So who is Socrates? Famous, right? Really annoying, running around, asking people asinine questions that they could not answer. And mm. he's just, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. That's Socrates. That's a, that's a good philosopher. And that's someone who's yes. open to anything and everything. And I, I love that concept. It's, it's the idea that, yeah, you know, I know nothing. And that's all that I truly know, right? Uh, the history of philosophy is a history of idiotisms. Socrates knows only that he does not know. He is an idiot. Likewise, Descartes, who casts doubt on everything, is an idiot. Cogito ergo sum is idiotic. It takes an inner contraction, uh, contraction of thinking to make a new beginning possible. Descartes begins by thinking thought, by relating only to itself. Thought regains a virginal state. Deleuze places the Cartesian idiot in opposition to the idiots of other kinds. It's like, in order to escape from these systems, you have to, you have to embrace the idea that you know nothing, right? Think about like, how that can just play out in a practical way in life. Like, um, I, I find it so much more liberating, liberating to not have like, stupid opinions on things like politics or, or, or discourse, right? Like, well, a, I remember the, I showed you that. The Deleuze quote here. Um, yeah. He already called for such a politics of silence in 1995. He writes, Deleuze, it's not a problem of getting people to express themselves, but of providing little gaps of solitude and silence in which they might eventually find something mm -hmm. to say. Repressive forces don't stop people from expressing yes. themselves, but rather force them to express themselves. What a relief to have nothing to say. The right to say nothing. Because only then is there a chance of framing the rare and even rarer, the thing that might be worth saying. Yes, yes. That's why I've been embracing this idea of like, I truly don't give a fuck about politics oh, anymore. I have no that. opinion. I, don't give a I have fuck. no opinion. I don't fucking care. They're going to be like, oh, but you have to take a side. It's like, no, I don't fucking have to take a side. You can get the fuck out of my face. Like, I'm just like, I care about me and silence. That's it. <laughs> we, need, we need to start schizo posting. We need to start memeing, yeah. memeing authority and a capitalism mm. into oblivion. Uh, yeah. Idiots are the real geniuses. Real G's move in silence like lasagna, I think is what exactly. we're Because this, because when you're <laughs> when you're insane and schizo like that, it exists totally outside of like metrics and parameters, and it cannot be predicted and sold and commodified. Exactly, it's cognitive rebellion really is what we're talking schizo about. Schizo posting, yeah, and like the and like schizo politics is the solution <laughs> to psycho politics, man. Because it's like it's unpredictable. The algorithms can't say anything about your future from your past, and you actually have freedom. If you can sit down and do fucking nothing and have no opinion, you're truly wise. <laughs> as opposed to someone who has to like explain it to you and be like, well actually blah 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 blah, you know? So that's the way out. Be fucking stupid. Schizo yeah. post. Write the write insane things on Twitter. I mean, but even then today it's, it, oh yeah. 
I like this quote. It's like, today it seems the type of the outsider, the idiot, the fool, has all but vanished from society. Uh, thoroughgoing digital networking and communication that massively amplified the compulsion to conform. It's like, think about, I've, I've thought about this a lot, like how people get so much more angry at you. If you say something to a question about politics, like, I don't fucking care about Ukraine because I don't know what's going on over there, than they would if you, like, were actually pro-Putin. Or, like, even on Trump. Like, if you're like, I don't know anything about Trump, I don't fucking care. Or I don't have an opinion about January 6th. They lose their fucking minds because that's so much more offensive than if you goose-stepped into the room doing Nazi salutes, talking about how much you love Nick Fuentes. Like, it's it truly, like, because they understand that. That's, like... That's something that they're doing. How right? dare, how dare you into have a no narrative. What do you live under a rock? Don't you care about your yeah. fellow man? That's almost like more offensive to them than if you were the <laughs> object of their of their enmity and their hatred. Because at least that they can put in a category. They can understand it. You're, you're playing in the system. You're still playing the game if you're doing that. But if you're an idiot, if you don't know, if you're like the video of that guy I sent you who like didn't even know who Joe Biden was, like you're truly free. <laughs> Right. By nature, the idiot is unallied, unnetworked and uninformed. The idiot inhabits the immemorial outside, which escapes communication and networking altogether. The idiot spins about like a plucked rose in the whirling river of a single minded people, people in constant in, in consent, those who have been incorporated and belong to a wondrous common understanding. The idiot is a modern day heretic. The idiot preserves the magic of the outsider. Today, in light of increasing coercive conformism, it is more urgent than ever to heighten heretical consciousness. Mm. I love it. <laughs> and I, I pulled this quote from, uh, from this writer. I really like it because like, I always found it very moving when I was young. Mm -hmm. I really like Rick Moody. He wrote The Ice Storm. And I think like this, this notion of like the outsider, the idiot, the person on the periphery who doesn't play by the rules... Uh, and like, uh, but like on a more existential level, even beyond the criminal. But I think this one's kind of poignant. And it's uh, junkies, masochists, and hookers, and those who have squandered everything are the ring of brightest angels around heaven. <laughs> That's powerful. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I do, well, how about the last line of the book? Beautiful. What a writer. The idiot does not exist as a subject. He is more like a flower, and existence is simply open to light. I love that. Oh, wow. And that's his solution to this nightmare. It's like, you know, we, we play by the game. We have predictive, rep replicatable patterns. We create versions of ourselves. We offer our data. We internalize our master-slave. But, like, what is the way out? It's fucking checking the fuck out. And I know it sounds, like, kind of... Kind of well, you, hokey well, and Alex, a lot you, like, at least you're in a position where yeah. you could even decide to check out. Some people like us yeah. actually have to, you know, we have, well, we have to, this vote needs to go our way. Yeah. Okay. It's like, all right. All right. It's all right. just, you're yeah. like, that's not solving your problem, man. Like, it's like, you're still enslaved. Uh, but, and I, you know, I can sit here with some level of privilege and be like, yeah, I can choose to be interested in spirituality and art and aesthetics and beauty over politics or narrative and discourse but like i think anyone can practice this on some level like you just just don't fucking play by the system anymore and and try to find meaning in doing nothing and you know what the lowest pauper can do nothing just as much as jeff bezos can't anybody can do nothing and that's that's i think my what i'm preaching on my soapbox now is do fucking nothing 
Dude, I remember when I finally checked out of politics, Trump kind of broke my brain. I didn't really know what was going mm-hmm. on. I was upset. I got caught up in it. And then I was like, all for Bernie. Didn't happen. And I was mm-hmm. for Bernie the second time. And then he bowed out again, endorsed Hillary fucking Clinton or Joe Biden. And I just, I just gave up. I was like, oh, this is sweeping leaves on a windy day. Like this, this yeah. is truly fucking pointless and a complete waste of my energy. Yeah. It's you're getting worked up over something that exists outside of yourself. You have no power over whatsoever. And that it plays on your emotions and keeps you on a track of, of behaving as you're supposed to, as the cathedral wants you to. And they want to keep hitting you up for $15 in those emails and text yeah. messages that never fucking end. Fuck that. And it works on both sides. Like, the same people on the right that, like, think they're trying to liberate, you know, society through an outsider are playing the same game. I'm saying, like, all discourse is bullshit, and I choose not to engage. Absolutely. I don't have an opinion. Oh, my God. How can you not care about that? It's so important. I don't fucking care, dude. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I don't have any opinion. I don't know anything. You know what I care about? I care about beautiful things and, like, how the birds sound outside. And I also care about, like, just taking a nap. You know, like, that's what I care yeah, about. Yeah, my, my, I wanna go, my like, ethics are aesthetics, just like yours, you fuck. Mm. You know, I care about beauty. That's it. I'm fucking done with this shit. And I think that, you know, that... that you know, it's a small example of it, but it's pretty much like, I think that sums up idiotism pretty well. Like, just don't engage, you know, but don't engage because you're trying to be cool. Like, you know, don't engage because don't that's engage. like, legitimately, like, just legitimately yeah. don't engage because fuck it. That's the only <laughs> place where freedom lies. So I think, uh, yeah, that kind of sums up this whole book. I fucking love this shit. I want to read, um, you know, his previous book, which seems a little bit darker, uh, the Burnout Society. There's a really good documentary on it also. It's all in German. It's on YouTube. I haven't watched it yet, but I think we should. Okay. Uh, and everyone should. Uh, Byung-Chul Han's awesome. He's very, uh, very, very clear to read as, as a philosopher that, you know, very obviously was inspired by Deleuze, Guattari, uh, you know, Hegel. There's a lot of good stuff cited in there, uh, but it's so uh, easy to consume and I think very poignant. I think everybody should take a look at this because it, it pretty beautifully describes i think the moment that we're all living in okay with that we've been going for two hours so i'm going to call it for us i'm brett my co-host is adrian the podcast is waking from death psychopolitics byung shul han check them out thanks for listening